Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Ilkay Yomaz, a DFG-funded research associate at the Faculty of History and Cultural Studies at Free University Berlin. Today, we will be discussing her new book, Ottoman Passports, Security and Geographic Mobility, 1876 to 1908 published in 2023 by Syracuse University Press. It looks at the ways in which the Ottoman state and its officials attempted to monitor and control people's mobility in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So as we get into it, first, maybe uh, you can tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you became focused on these late years of the Ottoman Empire and the way the state attempted to know and control people within its political borders. Thank you. First, thank you for inviting me to this wonderful podcast. Uh, So yeah, um, I'm an Ottoman historian with a background of political science. And I was really interested in the discussion on state formation, social movements and public sphere. So I wanted to write, write about the state society relations in Istanbul during the Hamidian era. But when I start my research, in the Ottoman archives, I was really surprised with the documents of the police files, actually. So there were, there were a lot of documents about passports and geographical mobility. And I was also puzzled with the discourse written in those documents using the concept, concepts of vagrant, conspirator, I mean, facade and anarchist, uh, especially to, to label some certain groups. So this book is a result of the curiosity towards those files. I investigated the Ottoman methods of control during this period and asked three main questions. First, so what was the political context that shaped Ottoman security policies on geographical mobility? Uh, Which discursive traditions did the authorities draw on to define suspects? And how did they craft discourses to cast these groups as serious threats? And finally, which mobility restrictions were enacted and how these measures did play out in practice? So to answer these questions, instead of investigating the political borders or a specific region, I tried to analyze a certain set of practices. And then you lay it out nicely. So maybe let's let's first give some general background to listeners about this, this time period, the era of Sultan Abdulhamid II's reign, the Hamidian era, as you say. Um, and this is from yeah, mid-1870s to 1909. What are some of the important elements of this period of time you're looking at where these documents are generated? And um, how can they, that the uh, events in this time period help us understand the state's concerns with mobility and the importance of these documents and documentation in general? Yeah, maybe it's better to talk about the historiography of uh, of the era, mm-hmm. so I mean it's yeah I mean it's it's one of the most con- controversial historical periods in Ottoman history, the reign of Abdulhamid II. Uh, Approaches to the period tend to fall into certain political or you know ideological polarizations. Although the Abdulhamid, I mean Abdulhamid II, is seen as a great ruler, the great Han, from the perspective of political Islam. For years, the writings of the modernization school 
often frame him in terms of the, you know, renunciation of westernization and modernization policies long, long thought to have begun with the Tanzimat reforms and in terms of Islamist reactionism. So it was kind of a rapture according to, to those writings because Islam was ideologically instrumentalized during the period of Abdulhamid II. And this period is also approached as having halted or uh, reversed innovations initiated during the Tanzimat period of reforms. Niazi Berkis, I mean, he was an important name. So his commentaries on the on the reign of Abdulhamid II, part of his um, comprehensive work on secularism, may be offered as a base reference for scholarly analysis taking such a perspective for years. But of course, there was also a turn in this geography. So uh, the turn in this geography of of the era uh, set in motion by the work of Stanford Shaw uh, straights Ottoman history with the, within the paradigm of modernization, characterizing Abdulhamid II as the last monarch of the Tanzimat period. So interpretations of the reign of Abdulhamid II in terms of administrative and political reforms became more common and the shared characteristics of all these studies is an emphasis on the continuity of the modernization process spanning from early Tanzimat initiatives into the Republic. So as such, the reign of Abdulhamid II is reframed as but one step in this process. Now we see the Habarmesian and Foucaultian turns as well, discussions on Ottoman colonial techniques during the Zira, and of course, now we have the environmental turn in the scholarship, right? So it's also, you know, noteworthy that Abdulhamid II's reign was marked by a dual trajectory. While diligently advancing modernization reforms and administrative centralization, you know, pa parallel to the Tanzimat era, these were also faced a critical juncture during the war with Russia and afterwards. So the parliament was prorogued and the constitution was suspended though it was not abolished. Uh, so the, these were became really important, really significant of the or characteristics of the of the era as well. So the strategic use of pan-Islamism for legitimacy and the concurrent development of infrastructures underscored the era's complexity as well. In the aftermath of the Ottoman-Russian War, the security dynamics of the Ottoman Empire underwent a profound transformation with the advent of the Berlin Treaty in 1878. So this pivotal treaty exerted a significant influence on the Ottoman security paradigm, particularly in two strategic border regions, Macedonia and the six provinces in the Ottoman East. So complying with the stipulations of the Berlin Treaty and grappling with the territorial losses in the Eastern Europe, the Ottoman Empire found itself compelled to implement administrative and security reforms. So in Macedonia, uh, these reforms aimed at enhancing the living conditions of the Christian population, uh, while in six provinces of Eastern Anatolia, the focus was on safeguarding the Armenian population, population from the attacks uh, perpetrated by Kurdish and or, you know, Sarkeesian tribes. So the imprint of great power surveillance was palpable, shaping the trajectory of Ottoman security practices in these critical frontier regions. You know, the Berlin Congress and afterwards the Berlin Treaty or Treaty of Berlin affected virtually every aspect of the Hamidian era for the next 30 years. Greater Bulgaria, established by the Treaty of San Stefano, of course, later it was, it was revised in Congress of Berlin, uh, was divided into three states. The borders of Ottoman Empire, Grivna, over, and reforms were on the horizon, both in those provinces, I mean, Macedonia and Eastern provinces where there was a substantial Armenian population in the, um, in the eastern part. In the 1880s, Bulgarian nationalism was organized along two main evolutionary and revolutionary trends. And, you know, to bring about the greater Bulgaria envisaged in the Treaty of San Stefano, the revolutionary movement sought in the short term to add Eastern Romania to Bulgaria and in the long term to add Macedonia by fomenting a popular revolt there. So the second aim led to the opening in Bulgaria of many agencies to provide aid to Macedonia and so on. So these were very critical issues for the Ottoman state elites. 
Uh, and in, in the 1890s, the threat perception of Ottoman political elites underwent a significant shift, primarily influenced by those questions. So the Ottoman government, apprehensive of potential foreign intervention, considered either of these issues as plausible pretexts. The increasing frequency of diplomatic interventions on, I mean, in Ottoman domestic policies heightened the concerns among state elites about the potential loss of territory. So it was a bit like, I mean, I can't say paranoid, but you know, it was really reactionary in, in the in the how can I say like in, in 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 when you look at the mentality, especially you know when you read the archival documents around these, I mean, a, a, about these issues. So during this period, Ottoman state elites uh, recalibrated their security policies, centering their focus on addressing the complexities associated with those questions. And interestingly, uh, and concurrently, the concept of anarchism, identified by state elites generally as, the, uh, as, as political violence, became intricately linked with these two questions within the realm of Ottoman diplomacy. So this nexus of concerns shaped Ottoman state's approach to security matters, especially during the 1890s. And of course, you know, this era, I mean, the Hamidian era, bore witness to a confluence of state oppression, massacres, and heightened political violence, manifesting through popular uprisings, guerrilla warfare, ethno-religious conflicts, and of course, political violence. Particularly in the 1890s, the intensity of violence escalated and accompanied by an enhancement in the organizational capacity of ordinary state violence. This transformation altered the extent to which violence became part of daily life and violent actions strategically employed by sometimes by revolutionary circles as a resistant tactic also assumed their role as a mode of political communication. So these acts were not only expressions of dissent, but served to assert an alternative political legitimacy, contributing to the, you know, multifaceted landscape of political dynamics during the era. I can also add some, you know, a, a small comment about the Armenian community as well. So though, though the Armenian community, community in the eastern provinces was the target of violence and double taxation by Kurdish warlords, the Ottoman government did not solve these problems for years and frame them as like public order issues. I'm talking about like, you know, what happened before the Berlin Treaty. So, I mean, there was ongoing violence. After the appearance of the Armenian question in the Treaty of San Stefano, it grew into an international problem in the Cyprus Convention uh, and afterwards the Berlin Treaty. In response, Ottoman political elites' approach to the matter increasingly took shape within a politics of territorial integrity. So territory is lost, you know, first in the Balkans, then Lebanon, and finally through the Ottoman-Russian war, uh, intensified this paranoia around security matters among the elites. And the Article 61 in the Berlin Treaty led to the transformation of the Ottoman government's attitude towards the Armenian community within this framework of paranoia and continued tension and insecurity between the government and the Armenian population. I think that does a very nice job of sketching out the kind of causes of the paranoia, the focuses of the state's paranoia during this period. And um, well, I guess that, and that before we get more into how the state uh, manifested this paranoia and you know, its, its documents and practices, uh, maybe we can think about the previous era. So before what, the period you're looking at, before the Hamidian era, how did the state try to regulate, document, people's mobility before this area that you're looking at? And then we can move on to how it changed during this area you've set up for us. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, before these regulations during the Hamidian era, according to legal institutions and bureaucratic practices, the, the fundamental conditions of recognition of individuals by the Ottoman state were local belonging to a religion or a neighborhood which were directly affected the passport regulations or, you know, internal passport regulations afterwards. So according to the new system came with Tanzimat or, you know, Tanzimat reforms, the village head or the neighborhood heads, uh, we call it in Turkish muhtars, 
uh, or the religious leader of the neighborhood had to register the standardized identity information and send that information to the local population registry offices. Uh, but, you know, the most significant oral keeping practice was the surety system, the kefalet system, which was based on grantorship. So actually, you know, the Ottomans during the Tanzimat and afterwards, uh, instead of creating a brand new system of registration or, you know, this documentation of personal uh, individual identity, they actually, I mean, in a modernized, modernized way, they actually tried to use both the traditional techniques and the modern techniques. So they, they want to, or they experience, uh, use them together in a way. The most significant uh, one, the, I mean, the practice was the Surya system, uh, which was based on a grantorship. And the system was mainly aimed at controlling peasants' mobility, similar to its equivalent in Russia, and was generally used alongside the internal passports. Uh, of course, I mean, in Ottoman Turkish, they, they were called mürür uh, teskeresi. Maybe the right translation can be, you know, um, certificates uh, to write to passage. And they can be traced back to the 16th century in the Ottoman Empire, but was reg not regulated until 1841. So if someone had to prove his or her identity that she or he had to, had to leave a residence for an acceptable reason, the person had to pro provide a guarantor, a kefil, to witness their identity or to ensure that he or she would continue to fulfill public duties, such as paying taxes. Generally, it was implemented as a systematical chain as men in a village would act as guarantor for one another. The chamberlain, uh, again in Ottoman Turkish, it's Kethuda, uh, would be the guarantor of them all. And as part of the millet system, the nation system, the local religious leader, it can be a, an imam, priest, or a rabbi, would serve as the guarantor of the chamberlain before the local judge. And generally, it's the kadı, it's the Islamic judge. And for proof of identity, the individual had to get an il-muhabaj, which was a letter used as the proof of barriers, good behavior from, uh, from a religious leader or from the neighborhood head or a caretaker of an inn or set of you know, bachelor rooms at the local level. And in some cases, this letter was written by the elders of the village or neighborhood until the population registration law in 1878. So the in Muhabar actually uh, was modernized through the reforms on the population register administration and identified as special information certificates in line with the updated population registration law in 1881. And in Muhabar had to include the name, date, place of birth or death, marriage, divorce, as well as the names of the mother, siblings, father, children, and so on. So it was formulated as an official copy of an identity registry certificate. And, you know, it was one of the steps of this, the proof of identity, the proof of uh, personal identity. Then, you know, then we have other documents like internal passports, passports, sometimes, uh, you know, identity cards or, you know, identity papers. They're all linked to this system or they were all linked to this system. But of course, you know, it was it was the regulation, but in practice, it was a bit different. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders 
no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So, I mean, as, and as you started to talk about, there are these reforms in the 1880s. So how can we say on kind of like a, you know, a grand scale, how do we see these state policies changing you know, from the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s? in terms of their regulations and requirements and the the, the state's goals even. Is there um, a, a, a linear progress or a at least narrative we can uh, say about this? Actually, it's really interesting. Like, you know, I mean, let me talk about the, again, this bureaucratic um, red type or the regulations a bit, and then uh, I'll talk about the changes or, you know, raptures or, or you know, differences during this uh, era of the Abdulhamid II. In 1884, we, we see this passport regulation, I mean, for international travels. And then it was reformed in 1894. Uh, and in 1887, we see the internal passport regulations. So generally, you know, they were very well regulated in a way. So you can, you can find similarities with the European and Russian systems. But, the, you know, when you look at the main questions, I mean, when you look at the practices from late 1870s to late 1890s, of course, there were a couple of differences. So the main questions, you know, for the state elites, so who could obtain a passport? You know, who had the legitimate means of travel? They also used passports, you know, for as tools for determining identity, especially for political control. And the passport was also used to prevent the entry of unwanted foreigners. And generally, these were Italians, you know, especially Italian poor, Italian migrant workers or seasonal workers, especially after the assassination attempts towards the heads of the states with the, you know, with the anarchist wave. Maybe we can also talk about it later. So they, they, these passports also used to get rid of the unwanted parts of the population and also to identify suspects. They were also used to keep statistics, controlling the seaways, the ports, the borders, and so on. Of course, you know, according to some specific historical events uh, or moments, we also see these changes, both in practice, but also, you know, in the means of regulations, too. So after the Armenian massacres of 1894-96 led to the mass migration of Armenians, the Ottoman government ordered that they would not be allowed to return to Istanbul. I mean, the Armenians who left the Ottoman Empire. However, permission to return was granted to Armenians who could present guarantors to testify that they had homes and family in Istanbul, as well as, you know, to those whom the Armenian patriarchate declared trustworthy, I mean, quote-unquote, trustworthy, or who were linked to collective surety. So, you know, it was, uh, I mean, these things, they were regulated with, like, some ad hoc regulations. So they were not part of the uh, passport codes, actually. So another problem for the Ottoman government had to do with emigrating Armenians, and attempts were made to prohibit their return to the empire. Passport controls were thus used not only to get rid of the unwanted, uh, unwanted parts of the population, as I said before, or to prohibit travel to undesirable countries, but to prevent the return of unwanted peoples. Not allowing return also prevented people from leaving to find a better economic situation and thus kept the labor force inside the empire. For example, in 1888, there was a ban to travel to America. And in, uh, anyways, I mean, in 1896, the Ottoman government issued a letter for undertaking. It's called Tahayt Senedi for Armenians who wanted to immigrate to the United States. Armenians who signed the document declared that they would, quote, never return to the Ottoman Empire, end quote, and filed two photographs with the document. In return, they were issued a travel document. Usually, it's an, it was an internal passport, not an Ottoman international passport, by the way. So, you know, there were, there were like interesting turns during this era. One of them was the Ilinden uprising, for example, in 1903. And after that, you know, we see 
how the Ottoman government tried to identify the suspects. And they started to put, uh, for example, they started to write to the passports with, I mean, passports of quote-unquote suspects with red ink, or they were writing the first letter of Fassad uh, to their, I mean, F, to their passports. I mean, Fassad, I mean, we can, we can maybe translate it as like conspirator. So there were always these uh, different kinds of regulations or, you know, ad hoc regulations. And also some of them, they were, they were regulated according to the correspondence between different, different bureaus inside the Ottoman Empire. That brings us to one of the major moments you look at during this time period, which is it, in your third chapter, you talk about the 1898 Conference of Rome. And maybe this can give us a chance to talk more about um, uh, anarchists, as you were mentioning before. So what was this conference and how does it help us understand some of these developments you're talking about, the development of Ottoman policies in, a, in an international context? Yeah, um, yeah, actually, you know, during the 1880s, the police institutions of various states began to form formal alliances to develop more effective mechanisms to fight against the violent methods of propaganda by deed and to ensure border security. Uh, so propaganda by deed, actually, it can be described as propaganda with, I mean, by actions. So instead of, uh, you know, mass meetings, pamphlets or, you know, newspapers, I mean, the propaganda via those techniques. Uh, there was also a discussion about propaganda through the violence acts. These incidents, such as bombings, explosions and assassinations, were usually associated with the anarchist movement. And this tendency of the police and, you know, other state institutions to identify anyone who used violence as a method of propaganda by deed with anarchism meant that the ideology became pejoratively linked with terror attacks. One of the major steps towards standardization and creation of an international police alliance was the anti-anarchist conference in Rome, three months after the assassination of Empress Elizabeth of Austria-Hungary. So this uh, conference, the anti-anarchist conference that convened in Rome, actually it was an, like a response to the assassination of Sisi, I mean the famous Sisi, the Austrian-Hungarian empress in Genoa, by an Italian anarchist, Luigi Luceni. It was really important for the institutionalization of, of security cooperation. The Ottomans decided to send representatives to the conference, and you know, internal. When you look at the internal Ottoman correspondence, and actually there are like files. I mean, uh, uh, like file, different kinds of files according to this. I mean, uh, about this conference, in the correspondence relating to the conference invitation, indicates that there were some anarchists but mostly workers, I mean, they were mostly workers in the Ottoman Empire, but they did not seek involvement in criminal activities against the empire since the state had surprisingly taken no action against them. And in actuality, the Ottoman government had begun employing the term anarchist in diplomatic correspondence relating to Armenians and Bulgarians long before the conference, not only because this provided a legitimate reason for the empire's security policies, policy, policies in the international arena, but also because, you know, the police minister Hussein Nazım Pasha, uh, he had started associating re revolutionary movements with anarchism in the 1890s. On the other hand, the conference was also pursued as an opportunity to roll back some of the purview of the capitulations and to monitor not only the actions of foreigners, but you know, also the products and publications they were delivering to Ottoman Empire. Because you know, the revolutionaries, they were also mobile, but their ideas were also mobile too, right? And the conference was also important for the Ottoman government in terms of fostering international cooperation to limit the production and export of explosives. So the main topics of the conference were the identification of anarchists and their activities. The creation of new policing procedures, practices, techniques to prevent anarchist actions and publications, and the drafting of extradition procedures. Actually, you know, this topic, the extradition, it had a long history, but it was also very present in the minutes of the Rome conference. So an anarchist act, 
you know, defining the anarchist act, it was also, you know, very significant. So an anarchist act was defined as having as its aim, the destruction to violent means of all social organization. An anarchist was simply one who committed such an act. I mean, according to the conference decisions. So this definition of an anarchist act conceptualized anarchism as a criminal act rather than a political phenomenon that could easily be managed with the administrative measures and practices of police institutions. And the representatives of the police departments of the participating space, uh, sorry, states agreed to adopt the same control and surveillance methods as France, Germany, Russia. So, I mean, it was also part of this long-term information sharing or, you know, uh, knowledge exchange in, the, in this trans-imperial arena. And this conference was a milestone in the standardization of police techniques. That's why it's so important. And the establishment of international police cooperation. Bearing in mind that the, the police departments were beginning to use new techniques, the effort to standardize procedures in various locations, various countries, should not come as a surprise, but still it was really important. And it fits in the process of the synchronization of modern states, or you know, maybe we can call it as like temporalities. And the identification, pursuits, and extradition of criminals must be seen in the context of you know, identity cards, passports, certificates of residence, and so on, which were or which are related to administrative record keeping and bureaucratic mechanisms for identifying individuals. So, you know, in this conference, in the Rome conference, there were also sessions on, you know, passports, the filing of information about foreign nationals and so on. And of course, you know, a further conference was held in St. Petersburg in 1904. Ottoman Empire also attended uh, that one. And the history of Interpol, actually, it was also connected to those two conferences. And when you look at the Ottoman Empire, you know, after the conference, the Ottoman government drafted an anti-anarchist bill that, were, that was passed in the House of Representatives, Mejlisi Vukela, but rejected by the Prime Minister's office, primarily because in contrast to the widespread trouble of anarchism in the United States or Europe or Russia, only Armenians and a few Bulgarians were implicated in anar anarchism in the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it was written in the response of the Prime Minister's office. office. So the Prime Ministry, uh, I mean, Sadaret, therefore decided that the penal code was adequate and capable of dealing such crimes. This meant that, I mean, it's the important difference of the Ottoman Empire, I think. And this meant that the Ottoman Empire would define such crimes as crimes against the state, which were already enshrined in the penal code. I mean, it was already regulated in the penal code without specifically define, defining the anarchist acts themselves. Consequently, the Ottoman Empire, while using international cooperation to fight against anarchism, sought to avoid depoliticizing it by declaring it a political crime. Although the Ottomans did not accept the internationally accepted definition of anarchist actions in its laws, attending the conference was important for the empire, as it entailed, you know, the participation in international police cooperation and was a possible first step towards the standardization and global integration of police institutions. Uh, so the Ottoman delegates to the Rome conference also gathered information about the police departments and policing methods of various states, while the empire itself found an opportunity to obtain international support to legitimize its, you know, policing methods against anarchist actions, mainly defined as crimes against the state in the domestic sphere. So in addition to these measures, collaboration in sharing information about the anarchists also began between the Ottoman Empire and some uh, European states as well. Uh, so at this Rome conference, we see uh, discussions over what it means to be an anarchist and how it should be defined. And we see these differences of interpretation, which I guess brings me to the, the next thing I wanted to talk about. You've talked about anarchists a little, but there's other terms too we can think about. And, you know, your first book um, was titled Cerceri Anarchist de Fessade Peshende, which is, you know, something like chasing after in pursuit of vagrants, anarchists and seditionists. So 
you're also interested in these terms there. And we haven't talked much yet about sorcery, a vagrant or facade, which conspirator or something like that. So maybe you can talk a bit about these terms also, how they were understood, how they were applied, that sort of thing. Yeah, thank you. So the first book, actually, it's uh, uh, I got a grant for translation of that book to, to English because unfortunately, you know, when you write in Turkish, um, only Ottoman historians can read it or, you know, the, the people who are working on the history of modern Turkey, they're reading it. But, you know, to, to speak with a wider audience, you have to write in English. Anyway, so, I mean, I got the translation grant and then after translated the uh, translation of the book, I rewrote it. So, you know, I, I just cut some chapters, I rewrote some chapters, I add some new sections and so on. Uh, and of course, during this time, some of the archival collections or, you know, uh, some categories under the Ottoman Empire, I mean, Ottoman State Archives, they were opened. Uh, while I was writing the first book, some of them, they were not, I mean, I, I had no access to them or they were not like open to, to the general audience or categorized. But anyways, so I also used some new documents as well. Uh, yeah, this new book does seem quite much more extensive in terms of the examples and things, even compared to that first yes, one. Yes, yes, especially, yeah. you know, especially there's this, uh, there are these files of uh, of the Reform Commission, which was founded after the Berlin Treaty. Some of those files were open while I was writing the first book. But then in years, you know, I, I think after 2014-15, the, the, the stuff on the Ottoman archives, they also opened new sections under those files. So then, you know, after 2014-15, they were reachable. But before that, you know, I, I had no, I, I didn't see them. And also the photographs. I mean, I could also, you know, work, work on some photographs uh, for the first book. But, you know, again, I think in 2014, they opened new sections, the photograph, photograph collections. Uh, so you could also see these new photographs, which were connected to the passport files or, you know, um, registration of passports, especially for the Armenians. So there are like, you know, really, I mean, the, the archival research, I mean, I did another, a second archival research, actually, to write this second or, you know, to, to revise this uh, English translation of the book. Yeah. And, you know, when... Going back to your question, you know, the relation between vagrant, anarchist, and facade, the Ottoman Empire employed a blend of traditional and modern policing methods at the administrative level. The concept of vagrant emerged um, alongside terms like anarchist and facade, gaining negative connotations during an era marked by guerrilla warfare, railway bombings, assassinations, and, you know, ethnic conflict. And this intricate interplay constituted the discursive foundation of their security policies, I mean, the Ottoman security policies. The historical continuity of discursive strategies is actually, it was really significant. And I mean, it's evident in the significant concept of facades. Maybe, you know, I can, I mean, it has a couple of meanings when you try to translate it into English. So you can translate it as evildoers, sedition, seditious, conspiracy, conspirator, mischief, and villain. And, you know, uh, it was used in state correspondence. I mean, used in the state correspondence, Pesat referred to those disrupting order and, and public peace, rebelling against the state or attempting political change. While rooted in the Ottoman Penal Code, it's also an important concept for crimes against the state. So actually, it's, it was really interesting to see that. So this brought an arbitrary application of facade. Uh, I mean, it's made facade a key element in framing facts, events, or individuals within the context of political fear, threat, and danger. Although the concept can be traced in the articles under the section on, you know, section on crimes against the state, in the correspondence, correspondences from a high level to the lower ranks of bureaucracy, the administrative language used facade to refer to every act or person that could potentially violate the social order. 
So, you know, this arbitrariness was also, you know, another thing. And thus the use, uh, the use of term in state documents was applied to some groups as a label, like vagrant, and had an extensive and arbitrary area of discursive practice. So the extent and arbitrariness of its usage made it one of the components of the security discourse used when defining facts, you know, as I said before, like events or persons. And the authorities generally perceived migrants, seasonal workers, or I don't know, like seasonal mi migrants without guarantors to be highly suspect and potential criminals as the label suspects or pesat proof. So for the suspect, they generally use like ahvali mechful, mazanne, or mütehem. I mean, these kind of concepts. And, you know, thus the authorities regularly checked seasonal workers staying in bachelor rooms or inns, deporting those migrants who had no guarantors from the city, I mean, from, from Istanbul. And during the Hamidian era, the state employed the surety system in combination with modern surveillance techniques, identity cards, international internal passports, hotel registration systems, you know, all, all of them, they must be understood within this framework. So one significant aspect of policing was anti-vagrancy regulations. So vagrancy and other public off order offenses did not constitute crimes in or, you know, of themselves. Instead, what constituted an offense was the involvement of a certain kind of person rather than any specific action or lack, lack thereof. And, you know, the definition itself widened the scope of police intervention in daily life. So the Vagrancy Act described vagrants as those who lacked legitimate work and either possessed no affiliation or registration, I mean, registered residence, or, you know, were deemed to be traveling without specific departure and arrival dates. So they were identified as vagrants and people of unknown circum circumstances. According to the internal passport regulation of, you know, as I said before, 1887, every person traveling in the Ottoman Empire was required to carry an internal passport specifying, I mean, specifying his or her departure and arrival dates and the places. And as far as the police were concerned, you know, traveling without an internal passport was a criminal act. So labeling somebody a vagrant or suspicious person was a natural result of their traveling without an internal passport. So, you know, laws against public order crimes and the Vagrancy Act can also be seen as instruments to, in that sense, you know, to control the population. However, in the Hamidian era, this manner of control was related not only to public order issues, but also perceptions of threats to security. So given the local upheavals and guerrilla warfare, occurring in the provinces, uh, the railway bombings and the assassination attempts in the city center, the state's use of, or the state elites, you know, use of the concept interwove with, the, with other pejorative categories such as anarchists. In their internal correspondence, the Ottoman state elites applied this discourse to anarchists, vagrants, and seasonal workers. So this link raises the issues of the filing and classification process of the modern state and the flexibility of the concepts used in this process. So these discursive strategies also restricted the extent of legitimate public spheres and marginalized, even criminalized, uh, certain identities, making it easier to sideline the poor, especially those who were politically mobilized on a discursive level. Well, now in talking about the Rome Conference and the, the discourse and debates surrounding it, um, I suppose we've come to the end, but what have we talked about now? We've talked about the Hamidian era, how the policies that were implemented and the discourse surrounding those policies was different or similar to preceding eras. And um, what I'd like to end on is to come back to this issue of archives that we talked about a little bit, because this book is such a interesting tr trove of different examples from the archives. So perhaps as you're as you're summing up, summing up your the big themes of the book, perhaps you can link those to some of the examples from the archives that you found particularly interesting or illustrative of your argument. I think that would be a great place for us to end up. Actually, yeah. I mean, this this whole process you know, featured a discriminative discourse in administrative mechanisms that frequently use the terms 
facade, anarchist and vagrant, especially for lower class Armenians, Bulgarians and foreign workers or, you know, seasonal workers. Um, actually, this further marginalized, you know, as I said, like even criminalized them and the new usages of vagrant and facade created a discursive link to anarchism and anarchist in their pejorative meanings. And these all served as crucial discursive troops for the security discourse of the state, which claimed um, to be keeping the country unified against its internal and external enemies. So this discourse is also important due to its effects on administrative activities, right? And by, I mean, by using these terms, the state also constructed and widened the sphere of security, meaning the other issues faced by Armenians and in some cases Macedonians uh, were narrowly perceived in terms of threats and defense to the exclusion of their socioeconomic aspects. Therefore, the modernization of security techniques and anti-anarchist regulations can also be analyzed in terms of discursive or, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, discursive technology. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I had so many cases from the archives, but one of them, when I was reading this file, I was quite surprised. And I mean, I, I also started to think about today's migration policies and, you know, crisis. So in the years between 1894 and 1996, during and after the massacres, uh, numerous Armenians left the country, as I said before, you know, mostly for Europe and Russia, and were banned from returning. Regarding international dynamics, uh, Sultan Abdulhamid II declared an amnesty, a pardon that permitted the aforementioned Armenians return between 9 uh, and 19th of December, 1896. So the file about this amnesty revealed some interesting cases and correspondence. Armenians, actually, they were coming from the ports of Varna, Odessa, Marseille, Constanza, Burgas, and, you know, many others. And on December 20, Armenians came from Varna to Istanbul. They were actually coming with uh, by a German ferry, sorry, Georgian ferry. Uh, but police did not let them land. And it was obvious that they had received their travel documents from the Ottoman consulate before 9th of, of December, shortly after they were informed about the amnesty. So as a result of the police investigation, a special police commission established to control and investigate Armenians who had the intention of immigrating declared that these Armenians were not suspect and they had valid travel documents as of 9th of December. And police authorities decided uh, to release these people for good behavior under the condition that they had guarantors as outlined in the previous version of, you know, Il Muhabar that I talked about it before. Uh, and however, information based on the intelligence sources showed that Armenians keep kept arriving by ferries on the shores and officials declared to prevent all Armenians from docking due to the presence of facade among them. Although the authorities knew that they, there were some other, you know, some suspicious passengers or, you know, suspects, the administrative network had limited capacity to identify these passengers and all Armenians became the target of this intelligence. Despite the attempts of the ferry companies, to dock them in the, you know, in the Ottoman ports, the state authorities ordered the Ottoman consulates, in, especially in Varna and Constanta, uh, not to issue them internal and international passports that could be used by those Armenians who had been banned from the empire. And in this case, it's clear that guarantors were also part of this information plexus along with passports, and they were the main reference point for, for the administrative network that involved, you know, consulates, uh, prime ministry, I mean, Sadaret, police ministry, and, you know, port administrations. So to, to prevent the arrival of Armenians coming after uh, 20th of December, the ferries were put under the custody of police, Zaptia guards. On the, on the open sea. 
I mean, think about it, you know, those ferries or ships, they were waiting uh, under the custody of police, I mean, the police and you know, the state's ships. And the police admi- uh, minister asked the, uh, uh, asked the prime ministry about the procedures for people on the ferries and those who would continue to come. You know, actually, the prediction made by police minister uh, back in time, it was, I mean, he was Hussein Nazım Pasha. Actually, it came true. One day after his pronouncement, there were new ships with Armenian passengers. And again, they were not allowed to dock. And those people, actually, they were trying to come back to their homes. And the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs informed the Minister of Police and, and the Minister of Internal, Inter, Interior Affairs, too, that officers should identify the exceptions. Uh, it was also interesting to see this, you know, in the file, the exceptions who were not members of revolutionary committees and not actively participating in rebellions and let them benefit from the amnesty. So, you know, it's so interesting. The critical point in the correspondence between the ministries is the emphasis on a potential attack by the Armenian revolutionaries, actually. However, this kind of political investigation of passengers was unlikely to succeed due to lack of technology and also the personnel. And, you know, considering the European consulate's objections to the Ottoman Empire's Armenian policy, the amnesty was extended for 75 more days. And the procedures for the passengers were further clarified. So the passengers were kept under custody and those who were not deemed as suspects were released with a surety, I mean, with a guarantor, which was recorded in the patriarchates, the Armenian patriarchates registers. However, the number of Armenians was so high that another special commission was funded to, to ascertain their political affiliations, even if they had all their travel documents in order. And uh, yeah, the Armenian passengers from places rather than Istanbul, they were sent back to their villages while any, you know, any criminals were punished and so on. For me, it was a very interesting case. And especially, you know, when you think about it, when you try to imagine those people waiting in the ships and afterwards, you know, those people taken under custody because of because they were Armenians. Yeah, I, I, I found the book really fascinating for examples like this and lots of other exa- examples as well. I mean, it really you, you bring to light so many different uh, notable moments from this era that can be at least found in the archives, right? And you do a good job of like showing how the the state, uh, the state's language is trying to capture these events. Uh, so I, I I find it very interesting and informative. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about is just now that you've put this book out into the world, what is the next project you're working on? Yeah, first, thank you for for your kind words. Um, so the next project, uh, it will be, I mean, it is now I'm I'm working on it. Uh, I I was lucky enough to to get a grants from the German Research Foundation, Deutsche Forschung Gesellschaft. And um, now I'm working on the long term securitization of the eastern provinces uh, from late Ottoman Empire to the 1950s. And I'm this time, you know, I'm I'm looking at one specific region, a borderland region, and I'm trying to understand, you know, how the political geography was funded in a way. And I'm trying to understand the interplay with the, between European colonialism and Ottoman internal colonialism in a way. Uh, and uh, the main question is like, you know, how this long-term securitization created. Uh, the long-term violence in in the region. Well, that's I mean, it's it's great that you'll you'll have the opportunity to look into that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, so with this book, I hope people go out, find it, read it, because it's a really interesting look at a particularly eventful uh, period in a uh, late Ottoman history. So, thank you for talking with me today. It's been much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.